Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Everyone loves a quadrilogy. In March of 2020, I had Amanda Watson on to discuss how we were managing our lives during the early days of the pandemic. Uh, twice more after we discussed the pandemic, anxiety, and managing life during all of this. And now Amanda Watson is back for a fourth time at the dawn of 2024 to ask, what fresh hell is this? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Amanda Watson, feminist theorist, senior lecturer at Simon Fraser University, and author of The Juggling Mother, Coming Undone in the Age of Anxiety. She joins me, I say with some envy, from the south of France. Let's start with a big thank you and welcome back to the show for a record-setting fourth time as we record our 97th episode. How about that? I am so happy to be here, but I'm a little disappointed I didn't get the 100th episode slot. It feels a little... I'd like to say we have plans like for an oversight. Four <laughs> times and in... in no small part because people really like these episodes. People love these um, episodes. I'm nice? so like thrilled to hear that. I love these episodes because I think like as your friend, and maybe I've said this before, but um, it's like the best catch up that we get to have because you're interviewing me. So you can't interrupt me all the time. I can <laughs> talk the way I want about video games and it's so refreshing for me. Yeah. It's yeah. good for our friendship. <laughs> it's very good for our friendship. It's yeah. This is what all friendships should have a uh, a commercial podcast component. <laughs> maybe these days they do. Yeah, monetize. Maybe. We sort of monetize everything now. The monetization thing is funny. I was thinking about this a little bit recently. Is is especially in the freelance life, you are incentivized to monetize everything. And during the pandemic, I had a hobby, which was having these theme months where I would read, write, watch, listen all around a particular theme. And an editor said to me, do you want to make that into a column? And then I said, yeah, that sounds great. And it absolutely killed the thing. Of course. This is so classic. Yes. A couple of my students always write about this inevitably each semester in the capitalism class. Someone writes about how they tried to monetize their art and now their life sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It takes the fun out of it. Were... creativity, kind of hobbies. Mark said this too. And we're back to Mark's already. So yeah. that's got to be a record. Oh, we're still on the ball, and, and which is impressive because uh, it's midday for you. I mean, Amanda joins us from the south of France, which is uh, not the worst in, in the world. Good work <laughs> if you can get it. It's 15 degrees here, um, which feels like the right right way to spend a winter yes yeah you could do worse in the south of france in, in winter <laughs> uh i i was thinking recently of, of our past episodes and we had initially discussed the early pandemic then we discussed the mid pandemic and then we discussed the late pandemic and i guess we're still in the late pandemic well, I, I don't know what you would call this uh the new normal i suppose and on top of all of that, we're also now facing an affordability crisis, a housing crisis, a healthcare crisis, a climate crisis. And now there's something called disease X floating around. So I guess my question is, how are you? <laughs> oh, man. So a lot depends on context. Like I'm looking out over a nice field and um, so I'm feeling quite um, buffered from the crises that 
feel more acute. Um, of course, there's like exceptional acts of feeling the brunt of a crisis, like when you don't have a family doctor and, you know, a strep throat infection gets very serious and you land yourself in the ER. You know, there's these spectacular acts of of violence at the end of structural violence, but also the wear and tear, right? Like the slow death of these conditions and the more bureaucratic insanity making forms of structural violence and that David Graeber talks about. Um, I feel like neither of those things are able to touch me in sabbatical land to the extent that they do when you're more tucked into modern life, when you have a commute, when you have birthday parties to go to, like we know nobody out here. So I'm here with my family. Um, it is isolating. And so there are challenges that come with that. And, and we're really immersed in a Francophone area. So not a lot of English speaking people were rapidly trying to learn the language. There are, there are definitely mood and mental health challenges that come with that, but they're very different from our day to day in Canada, which has been um, just a, a really fascinating and insightful sort of period for me. And I remain like every day, I'm very grateful for the sabbatical experience now that I understand what it should be about. And that is witnessing these kinds of shifts in oneself, um, one's connection with other people, um, to land, to culture. It, it's been much less about, um, more typical productivity for me. That sounds quite nice. I, that, that, uh, the, the, battle against, I mean, this is a little bit about what we were talking about a second ago. The the drive to monetize every last bit of your life is is a crawlery of the drive to be as productive as possible and the guilt that comes, internalized guilt, when you are not being productive and not connected to work, right? I, I was thinking about this in the context of cell phones the other day where you're always tied to your work, whether you like it or not. Uh, increasingly so it's not like nine to five you clock out and you're done you're always within reach of that and it invade it's it creeps into your little brain like well um, I could be doing this I could be doing this I got to do this later let me just check my email real quick and, and then what are you left with were you have you been able to, to disconnect from that as being there turned that off or diminished that that sense this is such a um an important question for me right now because I'm I'm really noticing guilt um, in, the, in the last year, but also especially um, in the pandemic, I think I might be the most guilty person on the planet. And <laughs> I think that my denial mechanisms are the strongest around guilt. <laughs> I, I, I just, uh, I was like speaking to my therapist right before I left on sabbatical and I was really struggling with the start of sabbatical. I think this is quite typical. You land after like, so what I'm about is I should caveat that this is like an extremely privileged thing to have, right? The sabbatical um, and a stable job. I'm buffered. We're both insulated from a lot of the crises we're discussing. Of course, we're not fully insulated, but but economic privilege certainly certainly helps. Um, the beginning of sabbatical, you just feel like you've been dropped out of an airplane or something. And you have all these projects that you're like, oh, finally get to that. I'll finally get to that. Oh my God, I only have a year. I have to get all of this done. And everyone says, like, everyone wishes you a productive sabbatical. And I was, I just like fell apart. I was like, what? I just like hit the wall. All of my routines were gone. And what I really realized is that I have no idea how to relax. I have no connection to what rest feels like in my body for me. All I have is work and guilt when I'm not working. And this is like longstanding. I like said this to a therapist when I was 19, like <laughs> what's not working? Like, I, you know, it's, it's, this is, it's also like, I was raised Catholic, right? And you know, 
I feel like some of my earliest memories are experiences of guilt as a five-year-old or a six-year-old. So, uh, and then we're conditioned in this world to like really connect our self-worth to our output in very specific, non-creative, instrumentalized, externally validated ways. Um, so I still have that guilt, but because a lot of the surface stresses are are gone and because I'm not in my city and down the hall from really smart colleagues who are publishing really excellent books with really amazing presses and getting all these fancy grants, the comparison that really like fuels that kind of capitalist sense of self and those trappings have fallen away a little to allow the guilt, my little guilty soul just to be like raw <laughs> and laid bare and very obvious. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm, um, working with some kind of informal mantras like this sabbatical is for learning how to be a human that is what the goal is this is the one shot you get in this life you got to learn how to rest you have to learn how to have dinner relaxing with people and not think about work and what you should have done better earlier and it is helping immensely to focus like this is my project my project is guilt working with guilt, becoming more mindful around guilt, not spreading guilt to my kids, not valuing my kids because of their, you know, productivity. Oh, so gross. Um, so yeah, the guilty worker, it lives, but she's working on it. Yeah, it sounds, and, and making some progress by the sound of it. It's, it's the distance from it I find really fascinating because uh, obviously that makes a, big difference when you're in it it seems normal and there's no time or space to really reflect on what you're doing you're just you're just getting through the day and you're doing what everyone else is doing and then you get away and you're like oh I, I don't care about any of that I, I remember months where I had stopped reading the news I was off and I had was really off and everything that seemed important to me when I was in the thick of the fight all of a sudden was just uh, off the radar entirely yeah. like I didn't think about it but then yeah, I come back distance. and I'd immediately slip back into it. Shit. <laughs> like immediately. <laughs> Day <Right>. one. <laughs> like, let's let's yes. do this. Uh, totally. I, I am in shorter breaks. That's definitely been the case. I think as an academic, but also a journalist, anything entrepreneurial, really um, any job, I think, within, within a capitalist culture, um, encourage us to encourages us to think of ourselves as uh, like identifying with that job and that skill set, right? So like mm -hmm. we really see this in academia. Like I am a medical anthropologist or whatever, right? Like I am a this or a that, and I, it's always rubbed me the wrong way. And I could never really put my finger on it. Like like I am not. I am a human, and I am like reading literature, right? But like I am not literature person. So, um, but that, that really like you're, you're trained in academia, especially as things have become more precarious, um, to outline your expertise as a part of how you identify yourself, your, yourself. And, um, that has been like really toxic. Anytime I've started to go in that direction and practice my elevator pitch for the conference or whatever, I'm least connected to myself. And this is something that I've learned only in the last few months. I feel now from this time zone, actually I think time zone has a lot to do with it, but we can get, we can get into that also. Um, for the first time in my life, 
I can love my life and myself if I'm not an academic anymore. Mm-hmm. I just feel like I don't need to do that. It doesn't define me. If it does, we've got problems. But well, let's talk about the time zone bit for a second. Do you think do you feel like that has just been a structural uh, impediment to being drawn into all of that? That you just the fact is that all this stuff is happening, and by the time it happens. You're you're just somewhere else, right? It's just like you're you're in a different cycle of the day, a different part of the day. Well, it's actually it's even more, um, I think, severe than just a different cycle. I'm asleep right. because I'm nine hours ahead of Vancouver. There have been moments when there have been like great colloquium talk coming to my department, and I was on the colloquium committee in the summer, so you know, it was like helping brainstorm who to bring in, and there these these things are excellent. Like I I want to see these speakers. But it's like midnight and no. And so <laughs> I have not had to practice saying no. It, it's also like something that's great about the sabbatical culture is I think in most departments that still offer sabbaticals in Canadian academia, the expectation is that you are unreachable, right? Like mm-hmm. that you are not responding to an email on the same day. But I am susceptible, as I think many of us are, you know, there's great literature on this, um, to deriving my sense of validation from my inbox, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, especially when you're like writing a book, you're doing slow individual work that doesn't get validated on the daily. What we get feedback through is online gaming, online Peloton, whatever, and our inbox, like getting a response right away. So I was so fast. I would fill my time and being the first to respond. I really like pride myself on my response rate, I guess, in a way, or that I was reliable in that way. Like that's how I showed others that I was a good worker, but also that's how I got endorphin rushes that kept me moving. Um, and that just is gone now. And it's been a little jarring. Like I check my phone and I'm like, nope, still nothing <laughs> because everyone believe when I'm working, it's been so wonderful. So now I would recommend big time that people not just go three hours away, but go where it's a different day. <laughs> it's been isolating and so amazing. Yeah, it makes me think to back to when I lived in in South Korea. I mean, that's about as far away as you get from from Ontario, and it was pre iPhone, and you know, it was post dial up internet. You, we were on broadband, <laughs> but we weren't connected in the way we are now. Uh, and I, I would go to work and be at work. I would go home. I would be at home. I would be hanging out with my friends and no one touched their phones because what are you going to do with your phone? Like send a T9 text and <laughs> oh, gosh. right. Like what, what are you going to do? I hope there's any kid listening or you no, should have a little they, some they, footnotes. <laughs> See, T9 text. Dial up. <laughs> and I loved that time. And, and I think when I try to think back to why I loved it, I, I have this feeling that a lot of it was, was that being disconnected. Yeah. I, it's great. And also lonely. And you think about families scattered around the globe, transnational families who are trying to make this work and think, yeah, you can see how weeks go by without significant correspondence in these conditions because uh, it's the reality for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, speaking of thinking back, I I was thinking back ahead of this to our first episode, uh, We uh, the first episode we recorded. We first chatted here in March 2020. And at the time we were talking about a lot of this, these same themes, uncertainty, anxiety, and then we let ourselves indulge in a little bit of hope. And from where you are now and thinking about today, 
thinking back to 2020, do you find that any of the big fears or the bigger hopes that you had throughout the, the early pandemic to entering into the late pandemic uh, have been realized? There's nothing that really stands out. It's like, I was really wor worried this was going to happen and it didn't or it did. Or I was really hopeful this was going to happen and it, and it didn't. Uh, for me, it was the build back better. Remember when, when we all thought we could rebuild yes. everything and we were going to have this great, potentially great transformation of social life and political life and so on. And then everything just sort of like went back to normal. We were you know, so I mean, cute. I'm We like, were like grade seven running yeah. for class politics. Like we were really, that was charming. And I say all this in the context of the pandemic still happening. We forget this, right. but it is ongoing. Right, right. And uh, yeah, but, but but in some senses, I mean, for me, my, my worst fear was that we were going to return to normal. And my biggest hope was that we weren't. And my fear came true and my hope didn't. So that was, right. <laughs> that was it for me. Yeah. Well, so, so, so in a way, um, like I feel, I feel the same. Uh, the hope was around maybe this level of inequality will demand structural change, will um, rally the commons around mm -hmm. universal programming. And I feel, and I, we were we were tempering our hope a little bit, but like there were, we both had a bit of like power to the people kind of like energy. And now I think what I what I um, failed to anticipate at the time was just how much of a crisis we were in in terms of misinformation. And I think the pandemic really, um, like rise in fascism, you know, like election stuff in the U.S. and and really globally, like misinformation campaign, um, were not as front and center in our media discourse pre-pandemic. Um, and now we know that people are experiencing like drastically different ideas about reality and society and, and facts. And, and that's like deeply sad and deeply scary. And like, I think the erosion of, of democratic institutions, um, scares me more now than like, I'm, I'm more scared of it now than I was three years ago for sure. Um, and so hope is hard in that context because, you know, something that I think we, we think about when we're teaching, like we teach about revolutions that have happened and, and what kinds of crises, interlocking social crises have precipitated the overthrow, right? Or like the kind of um, solidarity required for system change. And we just see the erosion of, of solidarity um, in so many ways. However, I'm still an optimist. Like I'm still that grade seven passing out you know, construction paper bookmarks with vote for me. <laughs> I, I have been watching what's been happening with the war on Gaza. Dang. And I know you talked to May Friedman in the summer, um, about like kind of the political economy of fatness. And, um, I, I talk about the internet in a very similar way. I love May Friedman. Um, and May Friedman in, in that episode talked about how like Social media literally saves trans lives at the same time it exacerbates hate and collects um, uh, communities to hate people, right? And doxing, and et cetera. Um, and so I feel similarly when I look at the kind of like global affairs, which has been my focus of sabbatical news consumption. No more local, don't really know what's going on in Canada to the same extent, but thinking about um, Israel. 
uh, and I see like a lot of solidarity and analysis, quite sophisticated and brave, courageous analysis um, across people who are not activists, who are not educated in this way, who have probably been the recipients of a lot of propaganda campaigns and misinformation from the state of Israel, you know, over the years and decades. Um, and so I see glimmers of hope with our connectivity. Um, we wouldn't know what was going on in Gaza if it weren't for um, this technology. So um, it gives, it, it keeps hope alive for me. There's still solidarity. There's still the ability to bring people in. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think so too. I wonder if there's also a an important generational divide in the works where young people are approaching these issues differently and are a little bit less inclined to be deferential, are uh, tired of, of uh, government status quo at any level of government, are tired of, of being underserved by the state, are less inclined to just believe a sort of a little bit more critical by default like for all the whinging we do about the kids these days uh <laughs> they grew up in an internet ecosystem that they obviously understand and navigate a lot better than their elders and that seems <laughs> to make a difference right yes i think i think about this quite a bit because my sister is 14 years younger than me and so I think about her cohort and they're maybe this is anecdotal, right? They're not representative. There are, there are, um, people in their twenties, you know, in our classrooms and, and in our, our workforce who represent the gamut of political opinions and communication styles and, you know, politics. But I, um, immediately when you said that I flashed to my sister's face and I, I just feel like there is something about, um, that generation's experience with precarity, uncertainty, and global ruin that makes them feel like they have nothing to lose in terms of how they communicate. So, like, they're maybe more assertive yeah. um, and willing to uh, take a side and take a stand because they weren't promised what our generation was promised. They don't have the kind of like millennial perfectionism that we're all trying to unlearn because we thought that by padding our CV with these good deeds, we'd one day win the race. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you you teach and, and you've been teaching for some time. So you see uh, young folks come through. Uh, I'm curious how they're processing all of this. So they live through the pandemic, uh, the affordability crisis that came through it, the uh, challenges to get stable, good paying union jobs. And then they're also, you know, they can't afford a house. Uh, and then on top of it, they're now watching global geopolitics uh, fall to pieces and the climate crisis catch up with them. I'm, I'm curious how, uh, how they seem to be processing all of this. I don't think they're processing. <laughs> I think um, I, I pivoted my research program around those two climate events in British Columbia in 2021. We had this we had this fire that burnt the town of Lytton to the ground. Mm -hmm. um, that was like you know this famous event, and then um, flooding a few months later um, that just 
erased um, pastures that one day had cows grazing on them. We had these images, these media images of people like dragging their animals through new lakes that had formed. Um, and I, I was teaching, you know, through this and the looks on students' faces, you know, they couldn't get into school. The highway washed out. So we were in that, that climate change is here. This isn't something we're studying. We were studying it in the class, but they were experiencing it because many of them like didn't have phone service because of the floods and whatnot were lost relatives and, and animals and livelihoods. Um, and so I think I, I started this project, um, a bunch of focus groups to ask exactly this. I wanted to know, it's called the Imagine Kin Project. I, I wanted to know how young people were thinking about the future and their, their future relations, just to make, just to keep it simple. What do you want your household to look like? Like, let's make it tangible and like do some daydreaming together um, in this context, because you, for, for you and I, like, I mean, sure, yeah, the two of us experience a lot of anxiety and despair, but I feel like we did not come of age knowing what these people know. And we still had a sense that pensions were a thing, even though they're not. <laughs> but, but when we were making Indeed. our big decisions in our 20s, we thought that that would be a thing, right? Like we, we I think we believed a little, a little more, um, in the power of institution. Um, and these, these students just simply, many of them just don't, um, because they're the, the water levels are literally rising around them. Um, and, and what surprised me in that research, and I don't know whether this makes me optimistic or pessimistic. I, the theory is sort of for thinking through some of these findings, I guess, if you could call them that. What surprised me is we gathered to talk about climate change. That was in the call for participants. And it was like called Imagine Kin in Climate Crisis. So like, how are you thinking about your plans? How are you thinking about climate crisis? So obviously it's selected for people who believe that we are in a crisis with respect to the climate. <laughs> and when they got there, they did not talk about the climate crisis. That was the backdrop. Many people alluded to the world on fire and they would say things like, like the world is literally on fire. They would all say that. And when pressed for clarity, they would say like, well, you know, like everything's a shit show. The world's on fire. I couldn't really get them to like drill down <laughs> because they just like, that's the backdrop. And then they proceeded to talk about the acute crises, the interlocking intersectional crises that impact how they think about family formation. So it was like, yes, the future is hard to imagine because of climate change, but that isn't something that I can even cope with in my day to day. I'm worried about being able to afford a house in Vancouver. And if I have to leave Vancouver because I clearly can't afford a house here, I might lose access to trans health because I can't find good trans health care in rural Canada where I can afford to live. So it was like, and then there, were, there was a lot of talk around like transnational families. Like, I don't know how I picture the future. My dad has always lived overseas. Uh, there's going to be an expectation that I care for my relatives. And I want to do that because of the way they've cared for me. Where does this fit into the mix? Um, you know, borders at the time we were still in the kind of talk about travel bans and whatnot. So um, borders real and imagined like real in terms of state, but also borders in terms of affordability and health. Um, yeah, it just, they're, they're so um, shaped by these crises that um, I think, I think life feels endlessly precarious Um and so I'm really worried. I actually, I, I'm really worried about 
um, young people right now. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. Is is uh, I can't really think of a generation I'm not worried about, but I'm particularly worried <laughs> about young people because it feels a bit like I mean, thinking about our generation. I mean, those born in the early 1980s, late 1970s, who grew up kind of on the cusp of the old world, new world transition. And in the new world are facing existential crises, but we're still promised the goods of the old world. Uh, work hard, you get a job, you get a pension, you can afford to send your kids to school, you can afford a house with a car and so on and so forth. That was the lie of of our generation that has been, uh, obviously, that promise has been denied. And then on top of it, then we met the climate crisis. And it feels like you won the generational lottery and then someone came along and then just took it all away. Yeah, it's fun to talk Whereas about with, with the young kids, it's like, no, you, you never, no, you're like you, you, you were the second generation that came after someone came and stole your parents' lottery winnings. Um, because I just yeah. think, think about this. If you could choose a time in human history to be born it would be pretty, I would think it would be pretty close if you accept the sort of like romanticism of the past, if you accept that, accept with an E, uh, you would probably choose, you'd probably choose to be born roughly around now, especially if you're like a non-white person in, depending on where you are in the world, right? Like we, we, we right. forget that we are living in, in many ways through a truly remarkable time um, but at the same time, it also feels like now we stay down existential threats, maybe worse. Like there's a real, <laughs> it's nice to have antibiotics, but not so nice to have climate change. Like I'm trying to think through, through that specifically, right? I mean, wait. Yeah. Sabbatical has been great for this because it you strip it down and you start to think about these big philosophical questions like what makes a good life? How do I want to live the rest of mine? Um, and I start thinking about things like, you know, I'm a body in the world. And I've got kids who are also bodies in the world. I just want to live in that body. I want that body to want to live. And so what are the things that make that body feel like living and want to live? Um, and guess what? When that body wants to live, that body wants to reach out to others it's a happy social body um, and so I just think about like the the isolation especially pandemic isolation like you've had great episodes you've, you've talked a lot about mental health um, with experts in the field over the last few years and I think about the we've talked about this a lot too like who bore the brunt of you know, pandemic isolation and frontline workers. And like, obviously the people who were the most exploited by these systems were more exploited. And when I think about generationally, like sociologists who study generations uh, often say like, it's not great science because precarity and economic um, access to power determines more than any, right? Like, or ex like experiences of racism or fat phobia or transphobia, like those things shape your social position within your generation more than um, external factors shape an entire generation's experience, right? But given that, we now know through this kind of research on youth mental health in particular, that 
that group was messed up. But like, we were all messed up. But those of us who were already in our lives, you know, who had come of age, whose brains had like developed to the extent that they're going to before they start eroding, I think we, we they're just, it's obvious now that it was worse for young people um, in terms of their like ability to imagine the future um, and their desire to live in their bodies and connect to others. And I just, I feel like I see that in my classroom, like, and here's the guilt again. <laughs> this is maybe just me, but I don't think so. I look out at a sea of faces who are struggling so hard to care about what I'm saying. Like, I really believe that they want to care, but their mental health is in a place that is not amenable to learning. And I feel bad that they have a deadline that's imposed by me. Right? Like, I, I feel guilty because I'm like, this is messed up. You should not have to be trying to force this information into your brain right now. You should be focusing on your survival. And yet here we are. These are the systems. These are the structures. I And side note, I tried to do away with deadlines. That was a disaster. So yeah. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it, it messed up. And um, so I guess back to your original question, I have a lot of worry right now. And um, my hope is like quite tempered by that worry uh, for young people. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I worry that going forward, it's going to be very, very hard to justify doing any of the structural things we require people to do because I mean, like, really? I'm like, look out, look out the window. I'm not, I'm not submitting this Monday. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do uh, Monday? And they, like, is it good for us? Maybe. Like, this is great. I, I, I actually think that there's a lot less like blind internalization of, um, like capitalist ethos and productivity. I hope. Like, students enter with a critique of the side hustle, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm looking like I'm here in the south of France. I'm like getting to know a couple families in the little community I'm in, and um, I don't know. Um, how much of my perception is like unique to SFU students who are living in Vancouver, um, where housing is like extremely unaffordable or where we've had these climate events. Like, I just, I'm curious, um, where in about different places with different norms around the use of technology at certain ages, um, in a, in a culture where there are no ads on the sides of buses, like it just says like, welcome to France or whatever, right? Like have a baguette. Um, it's just like a way less sort of consumerist, um, um, uh, set up kind of a place. Um, um, yeah, I'm more curious about that now when we're talking about global problems and, and futures. Is there anything you see structurally in Canada or abroad that, that makes you think, well, we might have a handle on some of this, um, you know, Canada, we have a pharmacare program in the works, which may or or, or may not help uh, millions of people. We're going to see the details of it. It's not presumably going to be the, the sort of universal Medicare model that that a lot of us prefer, but it's going to help. I have no doubt it's going to help a lot of people and make a big difference in a lot of lives in the way that the the similar dental care will too, or or the child benefit, which I think. Uh, an early policy of the liberal government is probably going to be one of their marquee historical policies. Fair, fair. 
Uh, I, I think sometimes we forget how big of a deal that was. But uh, like, do you look around and think any, uh, well, I, I feel good because there's a lot of hope right here or over here mm. or in this program. I, I, I struggle somewhat to think of an example at scale. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I've been listening to a lot of, of uh, books and, and reading books on AI right now because I'm working on a project related to it. And I, I'm not a techno solutionist by any any stretch of the imagination, but the, there's moments when I slip into this belief that, well, maybe tech will actually end up playing a big mitigation role, even though that obviously can't do it on its own. So is there anything like that that stands out to you as as providing a little glimmer of hope structurally? I'm glad you brought up the like the child care um, and, and pharma care and like dental care, also huge. I wonder if some of these advances in the welfare state um, represent a simultaneous or like parallel um, fading from view of the bootstrap mentality culturally. Like I, by that I mean like I, I wonder if um, if more people are more sympathetic to structural violence as we learn about billionaire classes, right? Like the rich getting richer. Like we have just like undeniable wealth inequality that's like so extreme um, that, um, and you know, like good documentaries being made about it on Netflix, like big budget flashy things so that this analysis is like seeping into discourse. I, I don't want to be, maybe this is my like March, 2020 um, uh, rose colored glasses, but I, I have to hope that as um, people experience precarity and inequality and like see these things for what they are, you know, like Paul Friere said, like the pedagogy of the oppressed, right? Like no one's more empathetic or intelligent about systems than people bearing the brunt. And if more people are bearing the brunt, will this analysis shift and will we see more demands for policy changes that are like making really concrete changes in people's lives? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, but I, I think like, what, okay, so I don't want to like be pessimistic on the show. I'm, I promise I'm an optimist. You can be I don't pessimistic. Know, like, it's, like, it's like cloudy today. Um, yeah, I'm pessimistic on here all the time. Well, that's why I try to be the optimist, oh, yeah, right? Okay. It's like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I, I consume a funny corner of the internet that we all have our funny algorithm. Um, I regularly see content sponsored content especially for like white women like wealthy white women um in their 40s who like talk about decor and wellness uh and philanthropy and one of the little like seeds of pessimism that is starting to grow it's really growing like alongside <laughs> relief and hope is around um, the swelling demands on the charitable sector to like fill the gap. And so I'm just thinking right now, recently I saw this like big influencer in BC um, volunteering for a school lunch program and bringing attention and donor dollar, you know, dollars to um, school lunch programs. And this is like, I have really split reactions to this, mm -hmm. as we all should, right? Like, uh, this is awesome. 
this person has a huge platform. This person is going to get dollars into schools that need universal lunch programs. I'm so glad that this person got educated and knows that universal is better than just giving a bag breakfast to the poor kids who come in the door, right? Like that we're even more advanced in our critique now to know that that causes stigmatism, like like it, it stigmatizes the the yeah. um, service and and causes these social fractures, right? So this is positive to see this. Like it's just like pink washing and green washing, right? Like it's always so mixed. Um, and so she's asking for donations, like something that should be federally funded. Mm-hmm. And so as people like as donations flow here into the food bank, these things that we really need for these band-aid solutions, does the welfare state shrink, right? Like, do we stop seeing this as a responsibility of of the government and rely more heavily on on philanthropy? And we just know how that story goes. Whatever is respectable, whatever is legitimate, always child poverty, if we can couch it in terms of child poverty and not single mom's poverty, um, that will be acceptable. And just other things and other bodies will not. Yeah. Yeah, that's my pessimism seed for the day. Yeah, uh, and I, and I think that is. Uh, I mean, so the there has been a growth in the welfare state in the eight and change years since the liberals came to power. Uh, there's been a growth in the U.S. a little bit of of uh, the role of of government in life in the Obama administration and the Biden administration, but then when you go back to the 80s and 90s and trace the retrenchment of the welfare mm-hmm. state and then you fast forward to the 2010s 2020s the advancements in the last say 10 years have really just been attempts to catch up with yeah. with the cuts of the 90s and into the 2000s and so even what seems like a real extension or growth or of the welfare state is really just a kind of very slow, modest, inadequate catching up of of where we were decades ago. And right, like we, we so don't have like social housing, be. we don't have yeah. adequate and we're seeing or whatever. The, we're seeing yeah. the, the consequences of that, right? I mean, you, right. We, in the 80s and 90s, massive retrenchment in social housing in Canada. And uh, well, look where we are today, right? Like, right? oops. And right. even if housing comes, we're talking about the housing crisis and and the cooling market. If the market comes down ten percent, twenty percent, which is not going to come down twenty percent, uh, it's still going to be unaffordable for millions of people because of, right. of how unaffordable it's been. And now we're talking back about the housing market heating up again because it never stays cold for long. So. Uh, it, it, that part to me is really frustrating, and 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 what gets me is that I'm thinking about, for instance, the Toronto discussions around property tax in Toronto, and Olivia Chow raising property tax by ten point five percent potentially, which sounds like a lot until you realize Toronto property taxes are zero point six x percent, and are um, you know roughly half, a little bit more than half of the average in Canada, which is one point one two percent. Uh, it seems like a lot until you put things in context. Right. It's like, oh my God, well, I don't feel great about that. You know, like we're <laughs> no. so far behind where we need to be. And then every little gain is is welcome, but also inadequate. I, I have to, we have to have hope. I, when I, and like Olivia Chow, I, I know you've, you've um, 
I, there's lots of um, podcast content right now on Olivia Chow, which I haven't listened to, um, but I'm very curious uh, about those analyses. Um, I just was reminded when when you said that because when she was elected, honestly, I was elated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me like, too. Wow, yes, like this career, like fighter, like this is awesome. So things like that, like do um, do show that there's like there is solidarity and there is like an appetite for um, progress. Um, at the end of this, like research that I did with Imagine Kin Project research, the focus groups were so generative of what some psychologists and climate emotion research refer to as like the glue between people that's like needed for solidarity. Um, it was uh, very cathartic for everyone to talk openly. It was like a reflective exercise. So people had to kind of write furiously and like free write in response to some of my prompts about their daydreams and then discuss it. And then um, after that, that really um, emotional, vulnerable discussion where people from different social positions were really like supporting each other. It, there was just like such acts of kindness and appreciation um, that really just lit us all up, I think, um, certainly lit me up. After that, we did this arts-based workshop that people could volunteer to come to. And I paid them as research assistants to help me code their own data. It was so fun and so emotional. And the room all night was filled with hope. It was wild. We were talking about hmm. devastation, right? Like we were not shying away from, like there were people who were like, I can't even write my dreams down on paper because I'm not sure I want to live. Like, you know, we were in it. Um, and yet those encounters filled me with more um, zest for life and and optimism than any other, definitely any other research mm -hmm. activities. <laughs> but even any other conversation, you know, for the last several years. And so there is, um, like, when we're breaking bread together, when we are, um, like, willing to daydream together, uh, something shared and something switches. And I think this is more like of an anthropologist or poet or humanities scholar type of optimism around, like, mean the meaning of life and um, making really tiny changes. But I definitely felt that. And so I think that really does keep hope alive. Like if you've left a board game night um, recently, you kind of know what that what that socializing does. And um, we still have that. So even though we're in this, like, I guess these interlocking crises um, are under the umbrella of this, like, loneliness epidemic, as as we're calling it now. And the social sciences are are also, like, using this term Um we still have these um, experiences of uh, connection and and I hope what I see in like a lot of like speculative kind of theorizing in the academy is um, a willingness to daydream as if it matters. Like a willingness to tell other people our hopes for the future and like visions for something better than this. Um, and kind of knowing that moving this direction in terms of dialogue um, in scholarship and in life is really important um, for um, for the next win and to know 
when when we've won something structurally in terms of policy. I think that's a very good note on which to end because we've come up against time, but also because it's very hopeful. So I, I think that's a nice, hopeful way to to end this conversation. As I look out the window, it's sunny here, uh, but it feels like minus 25. No joke. Just checked. Oh, uh, so uh, I'll... I'll you you get the clouds, but 15 degrees here. We get some sun today, but it is minus 25 with the wind. So uh, the weather really does does put a spin on things, doesn't it? <laughs> it does because I'm I'm not going outside. At one. My favorite yeah. <laughs> thing is to go outside and to walk, uh, listen to an audio book, walk to the coffee shop, walk to where I got to go to shop. This is kind of one of my things. Walk to the gym. Not no, at minus no, 25. <laughs> no, no. no, I do miss that sort of cozy. Um, there's like a British word that I can't remember. It's like hug or bug or something. Do you know this word? Bug, I think. When you can like, when you enter a space that's warm and you can like feel it, you know, like it's like, mm. it's not gay. Like it's like, yeah, you've got to look this up. It reminds me of it being minus 25 in Ottawa and like sludging through the like the sidewalks and then like landing in the banks. Mm-hmm. And you can just and your glasses instantly fog up. Yep. And like it smells kind of like gross, like beer carpet hops, but it feels so damn cozy. I feel like that's a that's a vibe. I, I miss that. Well, that's the vibe of this podcast, and I thank you for it. So thank you. <laughs> thanks thank for coming you so back much on for having me. Record setting fourth time, and as always, I'll be back to, in three weeks. Be back in three weeks <laughs> for the hundredth. Uh, all right. And and as always, thanks to Kellen Smith, Ross, Clark, and Aisha Jarrah who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. And, and to you for listening. Uh, thanks for joining us today for episode 97 and for the fourth, but not final appearance of Amanda Watson. And we'll see you back here in about two weeks. <laughs>